This is John Stepling. This is Aesthetic Resistance Podcast number 79. I'm going to double check that. Yes, it is 79. Uh, and with me uh, in Long Island, New York, Hiroyuki Hamada. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hello, John. Uh, Varun Mathur in India. Hello. Somewhere in India, in an undisclosed location. And in uh, Sweden, Johan Edebo. Hi, Johan. Good evening. And Corey Morningstar uh, is not with us. She's in a blizzard somewhere um, in Canada. Uh, I hope she gets here. But if not, uh, we're going to try to do these a little more frequently. And we'll have another one, I hope, next Saturday uh, mm. as well. So. Uh, it's been actually almost three weeks since the last one. It's funny how, how difficult it is to, to get things together or just how incompetent we all are. <laughs> um, but there's a number of things. I wanted to mention uh, that in, in the context of media distractions, we can file this under media distractions, I suppose. Uh, the idea that keeps cropping up everywhere of the 15-minute city, in quotation mm. marks. And if you Google, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but Google search engine gets stranger and stranger. Mm. Uh, it doesn't answer your questions anymore at all. Uh, I don't know if that's intentional or what it is, uh, but it but it's but it's becoming very difficult for certain things to, to use. Uh, the fifteen, if you Google fifteen minute city, what you will get on the first page of Google search are one article after another about the the negative reaction, the pushback. To 15 minute cities as conspiracy theory. Mm. Uh, the Telegraph, the Washington Post, the New York Times all start lead with uh, why are the crazies coming out against 15 minute cities? 15 minute cities have launched a new wave of conspiracy theory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I mean, it's pronounced because I, there, there's like 15 entries, probably more. I didn't go past the first page, to be honest. Uh, so clearly, the idea is not very appealing to the majority of people. And as I started to look into it, I realized, but this is, but this is impossible, firstly. This is never going to happen. Uh, and the the engine for this I guess began with the woman who's the mayor of Paris uh, but there was somebody else Carlos somebody uh, who floated the idea the World Economic Forum was behind it I don't know it was one of those one of those um, think tank um, ideas and uh, the woman who is the mayor of Paris thought it was absolutely great she's very big on climate change and didn't want people driving cars in Paris. And as somebody pithily pointed out, Paris is already a 15 minute city. Uh, there is no more walkable city on earth than Paris. And uh, the fact remains that, you know, 
15 minute walk to your job sounds great if your job is within 15 minutes. Lots of people have, have to drive to their employment. Uh, and, and while Paris may be a, uh, a great walking city with, with tons of bakeries and stores and markets and all kinds of things within close proximity, it's a pretty densely packed um, city. In the United States, very few cities, if any, outside of New York, uh, exhibit that kind of population density. And certainly in Iowa and North Dakota and Idaho, there's nothing remotely resembling that kind of population density. So the idea is a non-starter. Uh, so why is it being pushed? What, what, it, it, it's just the way these ideas have a kind of automatic media life, uh, a short shelf life. I, I expect 15 minute cities to disappear from the news pretty quickly because they're non-starters. It's impossible. It's, 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 it can't be done. It won't be done. It's just one of those, one of those memes or memes that has momentary traction because it feels mm. like climate virtue signaling. Mm. It's, it seems and, and feels green. It's promoted that way. It's, it's nonsensical. It's not any of those things. It's, it's, it's not even logical on its own terms. If you, if you read, uh, if you read the literature put out by the people that are promoting this, it's, it's, it doesn't even make sense. I mean, even on their own terms, it makes no sense. So, uh, what's interesting to me is that that these kinds of ideas that really feel like simply distractions have any kind of uh, visibility at all. Why are they being promoted at all? Why does every major news outlet in the world have a story on 15 minute cities? Hmm. Varun. I saw a post um, about Oxford where they were trying to implement um, these kind of blockades, which started, uh, people started sabotaging them already. And um, there are other signboards that are coming up in England that's, uh, that read extremely low emission zone, apparently. <laughs> I think that, I think, so what you're saying is, I think is in fact true, like it's impossible. Like if I think about India, it's impossible to get any anywhere close to implementing a 15-minute city. But I think it's more going to be about monetizing how people travel. Yeah. So you have to pay, you have to pay to cross your zone. And then right. you're basically fleecing people, mm. fleecing people on that, right? Like, so you go carbon tax, and then you have to pay if you want to get out of your zone and things like that. So that kind of puts a lot more pressure financially on, on individuals who are working low income jobs. And right. that, of course. That, of course. that can that can cascade into a really, really bad situation for, I think, I mean, places like India are just going to be, it's going to be awful if that happens. Right. Well, I think, I think that's correct. It's, it's, it's the, it, it's the precursor to, 
increased uh, travel tariffs, travel fees, restrictions, and uh, surveillance. People, the government will implement various ways to monitor your travel, increased monitoring of your travel. And uh, just as they're going to do energy usage, we see water meters being uh, implemented in various countries happening in Norway. Uh, all of this under a, a climate banner. Uh, and we'll talk more about climate in a minute. Hiroyuki. Well, uh, we kind of talked about this among uh, ourselves. We, uh, Corey was bringing up about the fact that, um, you know, our communities are, have been destroyed by corporate entities. You know, we, we have, um, we call um, our town would be like open wall, you know, we, we don't really have uh, community uh, places we can go and sit and chat. We you know we all we have are uh, Starbucks and all those things. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so we, 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 I mean, of course, it's nice to have a sit town, you know, you can walk to anything. We're all friends. And uh, but the problem is when it's promoted by the corporate entities, the, the same, you know, structure of uh, beings that implemented this, uh, you know, desert community, you know, so we can, what we expect will be uh, more corporatization, more commodification, more financialization and, uh, um, so it's a it's a tricky situation, you know. I mean, of course we want it, right? It's nice to have. Uh, but well, there's, but you know, it does, I mean, yeah, and 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 very clearly, there are places that don't have amenities. In the United States, there's the famous food deserts in in urban neighborhoods, in poor communities, black inner cities. Right. Right. Uh, and and the idea that the 15-minute city is somehow going to improve inequality is absurd. I mean, it's it's just going to be a new form of inequality. It will probably exacerbate inequality. Well, I mean, it, it, it's always the same thing. You know, we talk about racism, and uh, uh, so what we're gonna what, what we we should do, and uh, we get black president. You know, right. <laughs> I mean, right. No, you but, know, <laughs> big banker oh, president with seven wars, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, probably, I, yeah, we could, the most, most murderous president in history, probably. Johan. Yeah, maybe this is a, a good point to, to mention the, the, what I would call the looming bank crisis we're just facing. I think it hasn't really hit mainstream media yet, but everybody has heard about this this uh, huge collapse of this uh, Silicon Valley bank. Uh, so they, they uh, $200 billion just evaporated in, in a matter of hours. And I, I think contingencies of this are gonna be widespread. And, and this is in a very financially unstable context. Um, we, we can't give a meaningful overview of, of, of that situation, but I mean, everybody knows about the debt crisis and the inherent unsustainability of this low interest environment of, of our last couple of decades. But but I think we're we're now seeing the, the first couple of dominoes falling in the in the next crisis after two thousand and eight, um, the the housing uh, debacle and all that. So, so you know the the crypto market they lost 
over $100 billion before the weekend on Friday, and so did bank stocks in, in the West. Uh, as sort of a canary in the coal mine, also one of the, the largest Swedish pension funds, they lost 6% of its entire capital. And they say that pensions were going to have to be reduced for certain age brackets just because of, of this event. So this is, a, this is a niche bank in the US, this uh, uh, Silicon Valley bank. And its, its collapse eliminates a huge slice of capital for, for just one Scandinavian pension fund. So I think that's evidence of, of, of this. Uh, the, the contagion that's going to come, but I'm not. I'm not an economist, and I'm not an epidemiologist or, or a biologist either, mind you. But but I'm, I'm going to try to give you a, a quick and, and dirty overview from what I've gathered. So I, I think first of all, this is connected to the the immense asset bubble created by this low interest rate environment we've been in since about 2008. And this special niche bank, it focused on, on uh, funding tech startups. And tech in the US is a sector which holds a lot of these zombie companies who, who don't, which don't have much real value. And the, the tech startup bubble apparently started deflating for real about a year ago in early 22. And this happens in concert with central banks raising interest rates. So new investment to this sector kind of dried up. So you have reduced capital inflow to this niche bank, but withdrawals continued because you know salaries has to be paid and so on. So the bank had to start selling assets to cover its, its normal capital outflow. And this is the problem because the, the raised interest rates, it also raises yields on bonds due to the interest rate changes. And this yield race, uh, it lowers the market value of the bonds that the banks had to sell to cover their, their expenses, to cover the, the capital outflow. So they suddenly had to realize enormous paper losses instead of just keeping it on the books. And, and they quickly found themselves insolvent. So this, this can spread because other financial entities, they, they need to step in to cover this, this, this black hole. And these other financial entities also could find themselves in the same situation because of the bond yields and the reduced market value of the, the bonds that they, want, they need to sell. So, so there's kind of there's a lot of, of unrealized losses out there that, that might have to be realized. You know, something like 22% of the total equity of, of the largest banks in, in the US. And if this triggers fear, you're going to have a sell-off of financial assets and bank stocks and a tendency of, of investors to remove capital from banks because investors and depositors will fear that they too, these banks will too go insolvent. Just another point, and this will probably lead to further centralization of, of the capital of, of the bank sector. So the larger banks will just swallow up these smaller sector niche banks. Right. Right. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I, yeah, I have a couple of things to say, but let me let me go to Varun first and then come back to me. Varun? Yeah, I think, I mean, this is also, I think the intent was to drain the international economy of liquidity completely. And I think, I mean, the Adani crisis that happened in India is quite similar in the sense that the Adani Corporation itself had invested in the Life Insurance Corporation, which was run by the government of India. They also had taken loans and had invested in state-run banks. And when that stock fell, the spin in the media was that uh, LIC and the state banks were not so heavily invested mm. in 
in Adani. But the repercussions will only come, like Johan is saying, in the next few months. It's not going to be very evident right now for anybody to see. But it will definitely hit the market. And that's once that starts hitting, I mean, I, I've heard a few financial experts saying that this is going to be a lot worse and almost irrecoverable from compared to 2008. Hmm. So that's yeah. something. Yeah, well, and that's that is what I have heard. Um, and I'm not an economist and by any means, but the 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 commentary I hear is that if this triggers and there is a cascading effect, uh, it, it, it's going to be an unprecedented economic catastrophe for, for Western capital. And maybe that's the intention. I mean, this becomes, this is out, you know, <clears throat> outside my area of expertise, but certainly if you look at the pandemic response, uh, government response, in line with the World Health Organization and all their advisors, um, all the NGOs and, and uh, uh, mm. so-called experts, uh, the the lockdowns destroyed a number of national economies. Uh, they had a, a horrific effect on the U.S. Uh, uh, retail economy. Mom and pop stores uh, were were shuttered. And, and uh, a lot of people lost jobs that they're never going to get back and, and there's no safety net for them. Hence you see, you know, the unprecedented levels of homelessness uh, across the US and you're seeing homelessness in the US now, which has been previously associated with big urban centers, especially warm weather centers, Los Angeles and San Francisco um, Seattle, but then of course, big urban cities that are cold weather, like New York and Chicago and so forth, that have huge amounts of, of homelessness, huge increases in homelessness. But now you're seeing it in medium and small size cities. You're seeing it in cities like uh, Oklahoma City and Tulsa, and you're seeing it in Savannah, Georgia. I heard somebody was doing a film there that I know, and they said it's just unbelievable. Uh, nobody has ever seen anything like this. Yeah. So, so post-pandemic, the media does not cover it, but uh, the the uh, the immiseration of the middle class and, and lower working class blue-collar jobs. Has, has been pretty extreme. And uh, if the dollar starts to collapse, uh, it's, going to have, it's going to have very serious consequences. Uh, certainly people like myself um, who, who collect pensions and, and uh, both private and social security and so forth will, will you know, what, are, what are people in their 70s and 80s going to do? How will they survive? Uh, yeah. it's, it's, if, if that's true, if there's some level of intention in this by governments that, that Western governments saw the writing on the wall, and this was a kind of circling of the wagons economically to prevent absolute total destruction of, of the system, 
it's it's interesting because other people have floated the idea that this was the contraction of capital. It was capital was no longer expanding, but it was contracting. It was what somebody called a controlled demolition of Western capital, of capitalism. Uh, perhaps, I don't know, but uh, it's also taking place in the shadow of the BRICS countries agreements, uh, China, yeah. India, South Africa, Brazil, soon to be Iran, uh, and and the de-dollarization of trade of of uh, that that the reserve currency, which has been the dollar for as long as anyone can remember, will no longer be the dollar, and and there's a lot of trading already taking place with the yuan, Chinese currency. This is probably going to increase and. And this segues a little bit into a discussion about what's happening with Ukraine, the saber rattling of the US regards China, that suddenly Taiwan is an issue for um, the US government because they care so deeply about democracy and freedom. <laughs> I, you know, that people like Anthony Blinken can keep a straight face when they give these speeches is remarkable. <laughs> It really is because, um, and this is Blinken is an example of uh, what what Andre Martenioff is that his name uh, in those you know who is a very conservative uh, commentary commenter um, and and but he talks about the lack of of skill the de-skilled no life experience. Uh, leadership the these people that have been raised in bubbles of academia and in low-grade government functionary jobs in the u.s that they have no real experience uh they went straight from the classroom to the boardroom to to the halls of you know various uh government uh um, institutions and and they know nothing of the real world. And certainly the neocons are, who are in power now are the perfect quintessential example of this, I think. Uh, Johan. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I, uh, about the, the, the elite incompetence. So I, I rewatched this, uh, this Paul Schofield film uh, we talked about a couple of years back, A Man for All Seasons, you know, about Thomas More. Yeah. And I saw it in church with my, my convert group. And, in the beginning, Schofield's character makes makes this this remark that a society whose leaders are not characterized by a a certain level of virtue is going to find itself on the fast track to ruin or, or something to the effect. Uh, and, but I mean, you know, since since Plato, we've known that that societies that elites always grow corrupt and incompetent over time. I mean, unless you keep stirring the the pot, a lot of scum. Uh, accumulate <laughs> on top. So, so in the normal period throughout history, I mean, virtue isn't rewarded, but but avarice, you know, greed, corruption, and all sorts of, of evil always pay off quickly. And it's that kind of of, of, of people you you get accumulating on top. And but I, and I think one of one of Marx's problems, or the one of the problems Mar Marxism tried to, to solve was how to arrange society so so that corruption becomes you know, impossible or at least minimized in that sense. 
Um, yes, funny, I'm writing a blog post about, about this very topic uh, oh. right now. Uh, and, and it's been what I've been thinking about all day. Uh, but, but the question, this, what you just said begs a broader question, I think which we've talked about on here a lot. We've talked about in both of us in articles we've written that Hiroyuki has written. Uh, and that is this impoverishment, this shrinkage of experience, the yeah. erosion of literacy, the, 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 the de-skilling of, of the, I mean, people can't add and subtract without mm. the calculator on their phone. Uh, that's just an obvious example. People have lost the ability. Uh, penmanship isn't taught, so people don't know how to write. Uh, and and in fact, I've had teachers mention that students don't really know how to write cursively, and their signatures are things that that they had to go kind of look at. Uh, examples of and imitate and, and develop a kind. So everybody's signature looks like a doctor's signature. Uh, <laughs> it's just a scrawl now. And and but there aren't very many. I don't sign my name very often anymore for things. Everything is done electronically. Uh, so so we're in as I've said repeatedly, and I'm probably repeating myself even from the last. Uh, uh, podcast that that uh, this this kind of cultural denuding this 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 we're in the third or fourth generation you we're seeing kids in high school who were raised by people who were raised with a with a screen habituation and their parents in turn were so yeah, raised. Yeah. Uh, so we're at like the fourth generation. Now mm -hmm. I substitute taught a class uh, in, it was, I was actually teaching at an English class at a Norwegian high school here. And the kids were great by and large. I mean, it's very interesting you get a class of 30 kids. It takes about two minutes to, uh, to spot the smart kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does not take long. Nobody has to say anything. It's like the smart vibe or something, uh, and you're almost always right. You can spot, I can't talk, spot the smart kids. And some of these kids were very, very sharp and I had a really good time. And and uh, it, it was a fun conversation. We were talking about um, the history of colonialism. They were going to see a film, Taylor Sheridan's film, Wind River, that takes place on a Native American reservation. Uh, so I gave them background about uh, Manifest Destiny, the slave trade, the genocide of Native Americans, uh, the Trail of Tears and Wounded Knee and Pine Ridge and on and on and on. And it was great. And they, many of them had never heard the word colonialism. I had to define colonialism. So I gave them a reading list and all kinds of things. But there were a lot of smart kids. It was kind of encouraging in a sense. Uh, there were, of course, you know, lots of not very smart kids who were just completely tuned out but but that's always the way it's been so i don't know i don't want to sound overly pessimistic when i talk about this but clearly the culture in general has has 
nobody reads and there is a there is a reflexive amnesia in place and you can tell because news stories that 24-hour news cycle people forget yesterday's headlines it's remarkable and we're seeing the control of message by mainstream media corporate media um, regard stories like nato ukraine russia the demonizing of russia the extraordinary outpouring of anti-putin and russophobic propaganda just just astounding we've talked about this uh and putin gave a very interesting speech the other day about the nazis in ukraine about the specter of national socialism and the history in ukraine of this hyper nationalistic you know collaborators with the third right and so forth uh it, it was a very interesting speech he sounds very different from western leaders i have to say okay hiroyuki um i uh, um so we're, we're sort of talking about really really big um uh, issue with the, the whole uh, social structure and uh, and we're also talking about um um dumbing down of the people how people have been shaped to fit in this um capitalist dominated society we have um education that really doesn't educate and we have uh institutions that really uh don't investigate what's real and what's uh not instead they would pursue, they would go along with the uh, capital um, interests. So um, so there are two things. We, we have uh, this tendency of dumbing down, uh, leaders being incompetent and uh, uh, so on and so forth. But, but at the same time, we've, we've had leaders uh, we perceive as incompetent, but those people have been serving the capital you know they would go on um, um come up with crazy imperial ideas about middle east for example or um colonial policies against uh, latin american countries and uh, um or the uh, uh totally destructive uh economic policies that impoverished people um, but those things are really useful for the people who really, really have the power. And you know, you know what I'm talking about? So there's yeah, a double, yeah, double talk yeah, no, you know, no. when we talk well, about, I, you know, people are, uh, that we have incompetent leaders. Yes, we do, but they are functioning. It's not, you know. Yeah, that's no, that's a really good point. No, no, yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. And it's a really good point because they're not incompetent from the point of view of their masters. Right, and I think- they are serving the interests of the ruling class quite effectively. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, quite a few economists have been talking about uh, uh, China leading the uh, industrial capitalism. Uh, they are, uh, and the state capitalism is really good at doing that because they, they can allocate resources, they can uh, allocate labors, and uh, they can, you know, make sure that things are happening. But when you have financial capitalism, it's very, very good in accumulating the wealth to the people who already have the wealth, you know? So 
that's what's going on. And uh, uh, where is the West going, uh, going along with the financial capitalism, you know? And, well, and also we have Western hegemony backed by the, um, uh, the weapon uh, war industry. Yeah, they rely on the uh, uh, the the conflict between uh, the Western hegemony and China and Russia. So there definitely uh, is a schism in the Western hegemony. You know, structurally, this is really really a conflicting situation, right? Uh, sure, and I think that. Uh, it's interesting because if you trace back ideas about the origins of capitalism, and this is what my blog post is actually about more than anything else, which I hope will be up tomorrow or the next day, maybe. Uh, there are a lot of historians, uh, uh, Paul Sweezy and Robert Brenner and, and E.P. Thompson and Maurice Dodd and, and Ellen Meiskins Wood, who I didn't realize had died, who is terrific. There's, a, there's a, an idea that feudalism, the dissolution of feudalism marked the onset of, uh, of of capitalism in quotation marks that 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 primitive accumulation before that was not really capitalist. I mean, of course, it was Marx who understood that we're talking about a social relation and and that wealth by itself was not necessarily capital. And this becomes very complicated. But my point is that all of these historians with the exception of at least the later Marx, who, who marked a, you know, a profound change. Uh, and even though many of these, these people came after Marx, they, they still clung to this idea that the emergence of capitalism was a natural occurrence because, because the, the seeds of capitalism, the, in pre, you know, that feudalism was pregnant with yeah. capitalism and that it was just waiting for a moment of liberation to emerge. And that's what happened because of this or that. It happened differently in England and France, the absolutist state in France had different social relations than agrarian England and on and on and on. Uh, and actually, it was E.P. Thompson is was very very sharp, I think, because he understood a certain psychological dimension of of the enclosure in in rural England that that was different than than a lot of the other historians, but Browdell and people like that. But but the point is that that all of them saw that the emergence of capitalism as somehow inevitable because because it, it was like an eternally natural thing that people were, were uh, greedy and selfish and that driven by the desire for accumulation and wealth. I mean, it's very strange. And, and so eventually what happened because capitalism became associated with cities, urban centers uh, and, and 
and the bourgeoisie, and eventually terms like bourgeois, uh, modernity, uh, all of these things were equated, were synonymous with capitalism. And, 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 uh, and the, the so-called in quotation marks project of modernity was linked inextricably with yeah. capitalism. And I think this is what very few historical writers have ever questioned in a yeah. sense. And, and I feel like they, they missed that chapter in Marx somehow in Capital and in the Grundrisse uh, because because I I think he makes very clear that uh, and Ellen Meisken Woods does too to her credit uh, that this is not a natural thing or a natural tendency that that Fadum, famous Adam Smith quote about people I forget what it is barter and trade and sign that that's a that's natural man somehow. Uh, and and it's not the case. Capitalism is not some ingrained, innate, God-given natural tendency of humanity. And and but boy, that is a deeply, deeply ingrained belief today. So that even when you talk to people who are hugely critical of the current state of society, hugely critical of government policy, they are rarely ever. They are always reformists. They are they are never revolutionaries. That's that's yeah. I guess the message. Okay, uh, Johan and all of you have your hands up. No, go ahead, go ahead, Varun. You you were you were. Yeah, no, I think I mean this inevitability of capitalism is very strongly I think linked to the idea that is um, uh, misquoted to Darwin, which is survival of the fittest. Yeah, yeah, that was exactly. And my I think point. yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's. The, I mean, the scientific backing to it is kind of incredible because it's kind of justified by yeah. scientific research of Imperial England to say that this is what the world is. So you set the stage for it and then you introduce a model where people are going to be permanent slaves to capital under the name of democracy where empire still subsists, but people are still, I mean, people start thinking that they are free to make choices. It's a, it's a really genius move in that sense yeah. to carry on empire under another name. Yeah. yeah. Um, Johan? No, yeah, this is a, this is a complex and, and hugely interesting topic. And I, I don't really have much to add of substance to what you just <laughs> said, Varun. But it, I, I mean, this is a good example of this super ideology of, of progress sort of, of uh, frames capitalism as this, this inevitable product of evolution, this this the you know it's the 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 goal in some sense of, of human nature in 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 the world so it's a, at least part of, of it's it's a stepping stone on our, on our trajectory to to self-transcendence yeah i think it's very important what <clears throat> i think that john locke is actually looms as, as really significant uh, because he was at least in English, but I think maybe the first ever anyway, to imbue uh, avarice with the quality of, yeah. with a moral quality yeah, yeah, yeah. that, 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 I mean, he believed that, that the work 
his 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 servants did for him cutting the lawn represented his industriousness more than the servants that the labor of his servants and 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 the workers on his estate the people he rents from that this proved his moral industriousness um than it did theirs that acquisition itself was a was a moral quality and look the the echo of that exists today i you know people worship uh worship money i i remember when uh that tv show that kind of kits kitsch uh the lifestyles of the rich and famous i don't know if that was the 70s or 60s or 70s it was a big hit in america and i remember thinking you know lifestyles of the rich and stupid uh but people it was a hit show people loved it was aspirational. That was the apologetics applied to it. But this is aspirational. This is what I desire. Uh, it, and that desire is is a conditioned, indoctrinated uh, a belief in people, a desire that's given to them to have, to be one of the haves and not the have-nots. The desire is never that everybody should have something that everybody should have a lot even that's not the desire the desire is that i have a lot and you don't and and so when you trace ideas of progress back and and there's a linkage with with medieval christianity and and uh, i mean this becomes a yeah hugely complex topic philosophically <laughs> but but all of it is tied into as you just said uh, that the ultimate goal is 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 like pointless wealth somehow. Mm. And then what do you do with that? What is what does Elon Musk do? You know, when he's ninety. Um, I don't know. You know, is there some point to that? Is there some point to acquisition? Because it, I, it's always been lost on me. I don't know. Um, Everybody has their hand up. Varun, uh, Hiroyuki, both of you, any of you? I, I just add, like, quickly going from your line of thought. <clears throat> I mean, pointless wealth. Let's say that, <clears throat> sorry, um, $80 billion are going from the US government to support Ukraine in the war. Even if we took what's the population of the world right now some somewhere about 7.2 billion people even if we give everybody two billion dollars what everybody right now as a as a thought experiment has two billion dollars in their bank accounts now suddenly you'd see that 80 percent to 85 percent of the world's service industry would resign because they don't need to earn anymore and so what is the fallout of that is that necessities like food sanitation and clean water become the most important things immediately. It doesn't right. take more than half a day. Right. But the point then is that what do you do with the rest of your time, right? Time becomes a commodity in that sense that, what I mean, you, you're not gonna be able to give the farmer any more money to get your food. So what do you do in exchange for that? Right. So th right. that kind of, it kind of formats a different kind of society. And I think, mm -hmm. 
to keep the supply chains running and to keep the power running. That's why wealth inequity is deliberately kept in place so mm. that people don't have a chance to actually have a relationship with each other, to have the creative spark become a fire where people, I don't know, I mean, you could go to a carpenter to say that I want a nice facade for my door. So somebody will be able to do that for you. It's not going to be just bought as a homogenized product from a mm. superstore of some sort. So it's, it's very, it's very interesting that that's, a, I mean, it's a really good point because if everybody had a billion dollars in their bank account, uh, I guess the sanitation engineer would become the most important person um, in any particular city, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and and uh, and but this this see that these questions always beg other questions, and 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 the, it's very interesting because uh, uh, it's hard, you know, people can't imagine. Uh, the end of capitalism, as that famous saying, they can imagine the end of the world more quickly than they can imagine the end of capitalism. Sorry, I'm digging something out of my wallet here. Pardon me. Um, uh, and and we have a tendency, because capitalism is historically equated with modernity, uh, at least to some degree, uh, and with urban centers, and Western culture, the project of modernity, and I hate that term, but that's what everybody says, uh, is, is the culture of the 19th and 20th centuries. And we inherited as a society and culture, a lot of values from antiquity and, and art and music and, and all kinds of things and values and <clears throat> religious beliefs, although the society was becoming radically <laughs> secularized compared to the Middle Ages, say. Uh, what's interesting is how does one evaluate those cultural values uh, in light of, of capital? It's always mm. been a very complicated, hard thing to do. And you know, vulgar Marxists in quotation marks have their own kind of really boring buzzkill take on that. Um, that's never seemed correct to me at all, because we're, this question of the moral in in uh, acquisition, the, the John Locke premise, but but that productiveness, uh, making the land. In quotation marks, productive. That was one of the early things. You know, if if land was left fallow and empty, you had a right to claim it because you were making it productive. That was manifest destiny. The Native Americans were just letting the land sit there. You know, geez, we could grow things and make money. Uh, and and there are historians writing to you know Neil Ferguson who believe that still. It's quite remarkable. So. The question is what we're, we're now in the 21st century, what people refer to as postmodernism, and it's always the synonyms for that always echo the economic, uh, the attention economy, you know, the, the information age or something. It's always linked to, to the echoes, the residue of these very early mm -hmm. notions of 
productiveness. And, yeah. and so it, it, we're at a stage, if, if we're right about this collapse of banking and that we're going to enter a huge depression or the, the contraction of capital is real and maybe intentional, uh, what is the, what is the, the spiritual consequences of that? What are the cultural consequences of that? Um, that's, that's my open question here. Johan? Those are huge, huge questions, Mouse. So I'm, I'm not going to try to answer them at all. <laughs> I just, I'm just one... thinking about, well, you, you know, this, this, uh, this Lockean notion of, of greed being good. I think that connects immediately to this, this ethics of commodified desire I, I talked a bit about. And, uh, you know, if transhumanism is a, is a part of this, the answer to, to what, what do we do with this money and the time that's supposed to be freed up by, by the endless economic growth? Well, we, we maybe use technology to prolong our lives to infinity in, in some, some commodified sense. You know, we, we, we get hooked up into the spectacle, into the machine. We upload ourselves to the AI. And, and just a... Uh, Something you wrote about on Telegram just before we had the post, uh, the the pod, on on this, uh, well, the the Zen Buddhist quote. I don't think that oh, was right. the post of it. I think they don't think that was the point of it. But it it called to mind this Ouroboros, this this uh, eternal re return, and that's something that kind of also represents this eternal commodified spectacle is this endless growth into the nothingness of the cosmos and and that kind of idea is something something I, i've been afraid of all my my uh, adult life so i've had this this profound existential fear around this, this nietzschean notion of eternal recurrence it's this cosmic prison of, of idiotic and endless repetition without any opening towards transcendence that's that's basically my idea of hell i think but, but i had just an, another question to all of you so i i have this uh, this convert group in church and i'm trying to help these these um, all of almost all of them are young men uh, to uh, well, to, to, I, I try to foster this this independence because it's a countercultural thing. They need to to be, you know, critically thinking, and they need to be self assured and and to stand in the face of a culture that's not going to be very friendly to their their new perspectives. And, and I'm thinking about how how do you think we should foster leaders in in the future society? How does a society build? And bring out, you know, useful and, and virtuous leaders. Well, what's your ideas? Um, well, I'll try to give some <laughs> kind of answer to that. But but Hiroyuki and, and <clears throat> but Hiroyuki, you have your hand up. Yeah. Well, I was thinking that um, um, what we are discussing is uh, bound to come back to the fact that the. Uh, uh, the basic notion of capitalism is the uh, uh, um, stealing of the uh, collective powers, mm. right? It's 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 the uh, uh, the power of the individuals. One person could make this. Two person, two people can make that. And if you have hundred people, we can make this. And if we have thousand, we have million. We have many more. Um, we can do great things. And Marx talked about um, 
capitalists utilize this um, just as the uh, uh, our ancestors they they, they would have uh, they built pyramids and uh, all those things and the capitalists utilize this uh, collective power and they steal it then they claim it as their own power so uh, they put their name on it you know so when we right, talk right. about <laughs> social institutions we regard it somehow as related to uh, big capitals you know with th those are the authorities but that's really not true you know the any of the institutions we regard as um, authoritative um, comes from the fact that people contributed to that you know it's a culmination of our collective power you know that what we made it it's not the oligarchs you know uh oh, sure. well, and utilizing you know so the yeah. basic you know mentality is completely uh off you know we're always told and being shaped to go along with this idea that anything that comes from above are like the god's voice you know well i you know capitalism has always been um tied into domination that you can't have it without without domination uh and that's what a lot of people have written about you know power and so forth uh and and clearly the the rights that the few rights that remain for the the majority of people the populace those were things that were fought for you know unions and the civil rights movement and all the 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 ruling class never gave anybody anything they they were forced to you know give up some of their privilege now i was on press tv this week because of the protests in france right now because the macron government wanted to uh, increase the age of retirement uh from 62 to 65 whatever it was i forget something like that, uh, 62 to 64 maybe. Anyway, uh, it was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, it just, it just the dam broke and there were millions, they estimated three to four million Frenchmen in the streets protesting. Everybody was on strike. Sanitation workers, the metro was shut down, trams in Nice were shut down. Uh, airports were 70% shut down. Uh, uh, truck drivers had stopped delivering food. The waste incinerator, uh, I forget the name of that place, outside Paris, massive incinerator, was shut down. So waste was piling up, garbage was piling up. Uh, these were massive protests. And, and the conversation we had was that I posited that this was not entirely or maybe even largely about the increase in retirement age. It was an accumulative rage against the deteriorating quality of life for Frenchmen. That, 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 and this is a culture that's acutely aware of, you know, this, the everyday aesthetics of existence more than any culture in the world, probably maybe Japan rivals it, but, uh, and and 
the services for rural communities have been cut, health services have been cut. People, the yellow vest protests were about that previously. Agricultural workers were enraged. We're seeing protests across Europe. In the Netherlands, the farmers continue to protest. The, the meat industry, meat packers are protesting. There's protests planned in Belgium, in Greece, in Spain, in Italy. None of these countries are happy. And in Scandinavia, it's very interesting. This to me is, is hugely interesting um, because the US is signed an agreement with Norway um, because Norway is incredibly naive uh, to build two massive military bases in the north of Norway. There's no media coverage in Norway about these agreements, none. Uh, but, but there are people writing about it uh, from other places. And uh, my guess is that most Norwegians would think this is just hunky-dory, it's so cool because America, I mean, they have no idea the environmental destruction that these two vasos <clears throat> will result in for a country that prides itself rightfully on taking care of the environment. But the point is that, that even with this sort of media blackout, food prices continue to rise. People are feeling it. I talk to people, people are finally on the street, in line at supermarkets, at gas stations, complaining. It's unheard of for Norwegians to openly complain, but people are just shaking their head. And because if you have a family, the food prices are astronomical. It's incredible, it's very hard to feed your family. This is more true in other countries in Europe. It hasn't reached an absolute crisis yet, but it's very close to it. So, so I just mention all this because you have millions of people in the street in Paris, they need to organize. Uh, all of these protests need to organize. And it may be that the, the, the greatest contribution anyone can make at the present moment is to communicate with other people about these problems. I mean, activism in quotation marks is one thing. That's as a as an enterprise has sort of been co-opted and and commodified. You have Greta Thunberg and oh, fuck all of that. But teaching and educate. I mean, I feel like you have to you have to accept that you're going to make some people angry. That's okay. Um, I think I probably do more than I realize, but you have to talk to people and say, look around you. Does this seem right to you? You have people suffering, you have homelessness, you have self-harm, everybody is taking antidepressants. There's a, a epidemic of, of clinical depression across the West and yet, uh, Ursula van der Leyen and Joe Biden continue to make speeches about sacrifice for Ukraine because I just signed another trillion dollars that we're sending to Ukraine. Now, admittedly, that's in the form of tanks and shit that the U.S. can't unload anywhere else, but they're also giving them money. And it is a real war. There are people really dying. Uh, and, and the irrational of this that 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 
governments now no longer resemble the expression of their populace. They are completely representing the defense industry, corporate interests, NGOs, the billionaire 1%. That's who they represent. That's why they're sending trillions to Ukraine, because it's a proxy war meant to eventually topple Russia, and then they can steal the resources uh, that they feel exist. It's a fantasy, yes, because the country, the ruling elite in the United States are imbeciles. But, you know, that's another topic. Johan. Yeah, this connects back to this issue of the, the discursive amnesia you mentioned. And I, I'm thinking about what, what, do you, what do you think are the, the main causes behind this phenomenon? Is it just information overload here? Or, or I, I'm, I'm going to give you a quote from, again, from Marcuse that connects to, to this very closely. And he talks here about Orwellian language specifically. And he says, relatively new is the general acceptance of these lies by public and private opinion, the suppression of their monstrous content, the spread and the effectiveness of this language, this Orwellian language, testify to the triumph of society over the contradictions which it contains, which it contains. These lies are reproduced without exploding the social system. And it is the outspoken, blatant contradiction which is made into a device of speech and publicity. The, the syntax of abridgment proclaims the reconciliation of opposites by welding them together in a, a firm and familiar structure. And it's it's the same same thing you talk about here when when you 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 observe how well we we don't for, we forget the headlines of yesterday and we completely utterly accept something that's that's in full contradiction to to what we read yesterday. And how is this facilitated? How is this you know obtained in society? <clears throat> um, yeah, you know, this is the point at which, and then I see Varun and Hiroyuki also, but, but let me just say very quickly, uh, this is the point at which I think I, there is a psychoanalytic commentary here yeah. that, need, that needs to be introduced as well. Uh, uh, you know, the Frankfurt School, and, and I will say that I wrote monthly review online, an angry letter because they published that that idiotic article by Gabriel Rockhill on on the Frankfurt School or anti-communists or something. I mean, this guy is a privileged uh, academic kid who is self-promoting and and full of shit. And that's my my short version because it's a really offensive article. The Frankfurt School were Marxist Freudians for a reason. Uh, because they understood that that the missing element in Marx's materialism was was Freud in the sense that mm. that you had to understand the rise of fascism yeah. required uh, a subjective analysis of the human psyche and the mythology of national socialism elicited the response it did for psychoanalytic reasons, not just material reasons. And this seems incredibly important in the current phase of, of whatever it is we are in, uh, be, because, because you, you can't understand the, the solipsistic, the sort of ideological solipsism of, of contemporary, political commentary unless 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 you understand the psychoanalytic part of it 
the compulsion for repetition and and the the you know the the, the capitalism in one sense captures desire it encloses it as it were um and and the specter of fascism is you know this frightens me a great deal <clears throat> because i have small children but the 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 sensibility of fascism or mid-century national socialism mussolini franco that never disappeared it was uh-huh. it was just dissipated and 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 spread around and absorbed and that really did exist latently and pregnantly in the capitalist societies and it's now emerging we are seeing a normalizing of 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 all the symbolism of mid-century fascism and it's absolutely extraordinary i think and and kind of shocking and again this you know this exceeds the the capacity of a you know hour and a half podcast to to really delve into but we will provide links and i think people need to read um a lot of the stuff that that we mentioned i mean um because there's so much bad revisionist history out there and and uh just like we said at the beginning that if you mention the 15 minute city and you go to google search all you get are accusations from these corporate outlets saying don't be a conspiracy theorist nothing wrong with the 15 minute city now you know as i say it's a non-starter it won't happen but you see other forms of indoctrination you know demonizing of putin or whatever it is the the beatification of Zelensky, this ridiculous clown, uh, and and uh, the transgender movement. I mean, National Woman's Day, I saw a meme, a graphic making the rounds uh, in which there were a bunch of drawings of naked women. I think I sent it to you guys. You know, one with a penis, one uh, with, with really grotesquely drawn hairy legs and another one that for some reason had two colors of skin and so and none of them had a face these drawings they were all faceless that that signaled the i mean that was a distillation of the misogyny at the at the heart of of this transgender movement and and the interesting thing is in my lifetime i have known incredibly attractive transsexuals that it was very hard to tell they weren't women. They were very attractive, beautiful, um, whatever. I don't see those in the media. I see like, you know, the the director of health for the US government, this middle-aged man in a dress with with long, I mean, ugly as the day is long. And and I think, what is that? What is going on? Why is that the case? It's also somehow misogynistic. My favorite mem though was the photograph of that guy who competed as a woman and won all the swimming races, <laughs> broke all the women's records, standing being interviewed. He said, I won this race fair and square. And if the women don't like it, they can suck my dick. <laughs> okay, Varun. I just wanted to comment on uh, Johan's question about the amnesia that he was referring to, which you mentioned before. I yeah. think um 
if we can look at a long-term history of the internet as a military project, then it starts to make sense a little bit more because mm -hmm. I remember when the internet was introduced on mass early 90s, mid 90s, when it started taking off, it was more of an exploratory kind of thing, right? Like you could go to Alta yeah. Vista, you could go to Yahoo, you could go to various search engines and, you know, you could go to subheadings and then sub menus. And, you know, there was not just this single bar where you had to type in something and then the search engine would give you preferred choices. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. Right. Good so, point. and now if you look at Google, it, it kind of like on the top, if you search for anything, it, it, it gives you a billion plus results. Well, it anticipates in, what you want. Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. Which is really exactly. spooky. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and I mean, it's, it's cut down what you can look at. And by the time that you are at the end, like, let's say there's page 25 of the search. Ultimately, there's only about a handful of 100 searches that it's actually providing, right? Right. And yes, it's all yes, censored. Yes. And it's all censored stuff. So combine that with how social media has, has taken over in the last, I don't know, since the mid-2000s. And the research that shows how attention spans have severe deficits now in the sense like nobody is nobody's staying on a post longer than seven seconds man like so yeah, right. you know these are things which are and then you start to imagine how much information is being flooded in and through how many channels right. then you can start seeing what kind of an overload overstimulation mm -hmm. can create what kind of a shutdown in the collective right. where people I have think, uh, these right? are great comments yeah yeah no, absolutely. I mean, the attention span of people is, you know, it's a culture of goldfish now, essentially, um, totally. largely. People, people can't focus for more than um, the three seconds, apparently, that goldfish remember their lives, which is why yeah. people tell me they're happy in a little bowl swimming in circles. <laughs> but I don't know, Hiroyuki? I think it's it's really uh, uh, that's that's really true that the uh, uh, our perceptions have been changing and uh, 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 things are being shaped and um, I think that's again I think it's it comes down to the fact that the um, the collective powers that are useful have been promoted but the collective powers that are not useful have been diminished or mm -hmm. demolished. Uh, um, uh, um, completely, and uh, yeah. and so this tendency of the um, the capitalist entities to form the collective power is really guiding uh, what we are experiencing. For example, we have um, power to attack Ukraine. We have, but we don't have power to. Um, take care of uh, people who don't have homes and uh, food and all that. And you can do whatever you want. You can be men, you can be women, as long as you are waving Ukrainian flags. So something right. like that. It, and, and, and it also comes down to the fact that if they can create collective power, optimum amount of collective power with certain amount of population, 
why do they need more people? Maybe it's better to have less people. And sure. right? So yeah. things kind of make make sense, you know? It's, yeah. Yeah. No, and and you know, I think if as a thought experiment, if if you imagine humanity manages to survive, and I actually think it will, but but I'm not sure that in 400 years, historians will look back at the early 21st century hmm. and think, my goodness, there were a million homeless people in the streets of Southern California, uh, suffering mental illness, hunger, uh, all kinds of diseases of insanitation, uh, many of them living in cardboard boxes, thousands and thousands, tent cities all across LA County, Orange County, and nobody in the government was doing anything to help them. Nothing, nothing. It will be one of those historical documents in 2210, or whatever it is I'm imagining this, uh, it will be hard to believe, I think. Uh, people make fun of mm. ancient Rome. You know, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. What, mm. what, what is different? If this is worse, this is far worse. What is the government doing? Nothing, nothing. You have op-eds in major papers after the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, there were a opinion editorials written in major papers, more than one, two, I believe, saying do not lift sanctions on Syria to allow in medication for mm. hurt mm. children and families. Don't do that because Assad's an evil dictator and we have to get rid of him. That's, that's the level of cruelty and sadism um, in, the, in the establishment. And, and uh, it, it beggars belief in some way, but there you have it. I mean, through. Well, I think it's also that whether, I mean, it's, it's definitely not uh, mainstream thought, but it seems to me that empire has only changed the way it did things. It hasn't done, it hasn't, there's nothing that has changed in the way things work. It's yeah. just how they work. Like what are what's what are the new tools that are being used to perpetuate the aims of empire and capital? That's all yeah. that's changed, right? Like the models, um, like technology might have advanced a little bit, sure. Um, the way cities function, air traffic, so on and so forth. But underneath all that, just the the, the, the mode of function of empire still remains the same. Just the way they do it has changed, right? Well, it's absolutely. And, you know, it's an interesting question. This exceeds, again, probably the scope of what we can cover here. But you hear conservative social um, theorists, historians, and social scientists talk about the improvement in the quality of life, that we are living in an age in which people live longer, people are healthier. And statistically, this is true, right? Uh, because there was a high infant mortality in, in the Middle Ages on through uh, 
16th, 17th, 18th century. A lot of children died at childbirth. Children died young from diseases that have now been eradicated largely. So that's all true. But, but does one believe actually that the quality of life is better? See, I don't know anymore. Uh, uh, or is it just healthier slaves? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, we're healthier slaves for sure. <laughs> and, and one in four Americans has taken prescription antidepressants. That suggests a very, very unhappy society. Um, same in Canada, same in the UK. Uh, these are the only places with statistics. You can read French psychiatrists, a number of whom have written about, uh, you know, the acute sense of loneliness and unhappiness of the average French citizen today. There was a German um, um, mental health worker was saying the same thing. There is a, an epidemic of depression and self-harm alcoholism, drug addiction. Why are so many people addicted to drugs? Um, you know, because they're, they're numbing the pain. So I don't know. I don't know. Is this better? Um, I'm glad there's, you know, less infant mortality, but I'm not sure the rest of it, that the quality of life is better at all. I'm not at all convinced of that anymore. Mm. In fact, I'm 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 kind of leaning in the opposite direction. Okay, um, but but uh, one other comment, one other topic, very quickly, because I think we're probably going we're going a bit long here, um, uh, and that is that is the climate agenda, and I just want to mention it because so much is spinning off that today, uh, the government's everything, everything has the prefix green in front of it. And uh, uh, it used to be that as somebody said, if free, you know, if the name of an NGO had freedom or democracy in it, you mm -hmm. knew it was a CIA front group. Um, if, if you see green in the title, um, you pretty much can, can rest assured this is, this is a, a government front group of some sort. It's, it's, it's in overdrive now, and I'm not I'm not seeing the catastrophic, you know, environmental events happening yet. I think the Earth is getting warmer. I will say that. I think I'm not sure. The Earth is a big place, guys. <laughs> um, and and but let's say it is. But I don't think it has anything to do with you know carbon capture or or any of this. I think capitalism is polluting the planet. I think the oceans are clogged with plastics. Microplastics are in everybody's food and toothpaste and everything else. All of that's true. But um, is climate change um, something that, that is being <laughs> reasonably addressed by every, any government policy or the IPCC or any of this? No, no. And it's it's becoming comically um, stupid at this point with that 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 people buy into it. It's like it's like wearing masks, you know, during the pandemic. Let me put on my crocheted mask here, my filthy three-day-old white mask because that that's much healthier. And I'm going to put one on my kid too, so he can't breathe. 
uh, that's much healthier than um, going and playing in the sunshine. It, it, it's just, it, it was a, um, it was really a grotesque, um, a grotesque project against humanity, a crime against humanity. But we're seeing it with climate now, you know. So I just wanted to add that 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 this is maybe the next next podcast, um, which I hope is next Saturday with Corey. We'll be back um, because she will have much to say about this. Uh, uh, that's the topic, I think. Hiroyuki. Well, the, with the uh, uh, climate issues, uh, we really should emphasize that uh, Corey has done great, great work. And uh, the core uh, part of the research has to do with the fact that what's been promoted as uh, green, what's been promoted as good for the planet, will provide more wealth to the people who are right. enforcing those things while depriving the people and making the environmental issues worse. So, yep. you know, this this is really, it's not something, you know, debatable. The, the facts and the numbers are just indicating that what they're doing is not adding up at all. Well, everybody should read, should go to Corey's blog, mm. Corey's site, which I think is fixed. It was hacked and down yeah. for a while. Um, wrong kind of green. And just there's an archive of extraordinary work there. I mean, people should read that, read it, and and then come argue with me that that um, that any of this makes sense. Johan? Yeah, I'm just gonna add. I, I don't think that the climate agenda is an entirely arbitrary process for for no reason at all. I, I think it's predicated on actual resource and energy scarcities. And it amounts to the, the most reasonable way to sell uh, an inevitable transition to the, the population in general. But we'll, we'll get into the depths of that next time, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, there are real issues with um, resources. And, and as we've mentioned before, things like, <clears throat> you know, wind turbines and mm. smartphones and all electric cars mm. are not sustainable. No. So the people making them know this. They know this. I think, I hope, actually, I hope they know it. Uh, it's not sustainable. It can't go on for more than about another 20 years maximum. So what, what is the, what is plan B? What is their fallback position? What is their um, recuperative uh, strategy uh, at the end of, at the end of this cycle of unsustainability. I mean, that to me is a really germane question. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you. I miss Corey, but she'll be back next time. Uh, if there's any final thoughts, give them now or forever hold your peace. Uh, I think thanks to Jack Littman too. Yep. I think the green in front of all of this stuff that's being pushed just means money doesn't have not anything to do with nature and money only for the corporations that are pushing this agenda. That's, that's very good. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's very good. Green money. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you. Uh, Hiroyuki. Oh, I'm fine. Yeah. Okay. Varun, Johan, Hiroyuki, and um, we will hopefully see you uh, and do this again in, in like a week instead of a month. Mm -hmm. Okay, Great. guys. Excellent. Adios. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.